0: Hi, and welcome to the Days of Learning podcast. I'm your host, David Nelson. and It is such a joy to be here. The Days of Learning podcast, where we discuss all things health, wellness, medicine, community engagement, and of course, equity. Our show is sponsored by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, Wisconsin Department of Health, Milwaukee County Organizations Promoting Prevention, and the Medical College of Wisconsin. What a thrill it is to have my good friend, my longtime friend, Tony Shields, onto the show. Tony, good to see, good to see you, good to hear you, and good to hear that this is live. And you know, we're hearing it
1: you're hearing Did a Did you siren. hear the siren? Did you hear the siren right outside of my window? I could, I'll try to kick my window closed over the course of the, uh, over the course of the discussion. But yeah, there was just a just a paramedic just went by, but I think it'll be quiet now for a bit. But yes, I'm excited to be here, David. Thank you for having me.
0: You know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell. Oh, we'll tell a few tales because I've known Tony for about eleven years now, uh, and, mm-hmm. and Tony knows what I'm gonna say. But at my first meeting with Tony Shields, as we were writing a grant, he walked in on a Saturday. I'm the new executive director of United Neighborhood Centers of Milwaukee, and I said, "Great to have you sit down and write this section."
1: <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. It was a, it was a Saturday in April. Uh a Saturday morning in April and we were down to medical college crafting grants and writing and stuff. So yes, and, and, I remember that vividly.
0: And we got that grant and we've never looked back and what a joy it is. We've to never be looked here. back. That's right. That's right. Tony, I'm going to um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pause a little bit because I, I've known you, but our guests don't know you. Uh, Tony Shields is uh, the executive director of the Wisconsin Philanthropy Association. He's formerly the director of United Neighborhood Centers in Milwaukee. He has been with the Milwaukee Bucks. He has been with the Harley Davidson Foundation. And I think there are things that I'm missing. But uh, Tony, tell us a little bit about
1: your background. Yeah, so uh, I've been in Milwaukee now, or at least in Wisconsin, for the better part of the last 30 years. Uh, as, as you mentioned, I'm the uh, president and CEO of the Wisconsin Philanthropy Network. Um, WPN is a collaborative of neighborhoods, uh, I'm sorry, is a collaborative <laughs> of philanthropic organizations uh, throughout the state of Wisconsin. Uh, my journey uh, into this position and kind of into this place that I'm in in my life now and this work that I'm like now is really a a trajectory, I think, of um, many different experiences that I've had uh, over the course of my uh, professional career. I'm originally from Chicago, um, came to Milwaukee uh, back in the mid-80s to attend college at Cardinal Stretch University. Um, I had studied uh, communications um, and had with the hope of uh, becoming a radio disc jockey was what I really wanted to do. Uh, so I wanted to move into broadcasting uh, and and working within the field of um, of broadcast media. And uh, I was fortunate enough to get an internship at WTMJ Radio at the time. And uh, through that internship, uh, uh, some a lot of transition had been going on with the Milwaukee Bucks organization, and I was able to move from that internship. Uh, to get a job with the Milwaukee Bucks organization, and then that was my entryway and the real driver for me to stay in the Milwaukee community. It, was, it wasn't uh, an ultimate college goal of mine to stay in Milwaukee. Uh, I thought I would probably be going back to Chicago after I graduated, um, but uh, came to Milwaukee by way of employment. And really, as a, as a college student, I had beyond, you know, beyond the the college um, theatrics (laughs) that go on in in our lives, uh, I really hadn't given much thought. I really didn't have a lot of knowledge about what a great city Milwaukee was. And it wasn't until I began working in forms and spaces that were these external outward facing organizations that were doing a lot of work. Uh, in communities and a lot of work celebrating uh, the the festival atmosphere of the city that I came to realize and came to fall in love with Milwaukee and realized at that point that it was something that I wanted to do was stay in Milwaukee and and do the work that I was doing. Uh, So my journey kind of took me in many different directions. I started out as a kind of a gopher within the Bucks organization, moved to sales and marketing, Season tickets, sponsorship sales, and those kinds of things. And then that took me to an experience based on a sponsorship relationship that we had, where we were giving away tickets to uh, schools in the Milwaukee, Sheboygan, and Waukesha areas. And that program that I was running uh, gave me an opportunity to visit school environments on a regular basis. Every day I was walking into. A school or a school system, and then when you, if you have the opportunity to be able to do that, you'll walk into these schools, these various school systems at the mm-hmm. elementary, middle, and high school levels, and you'll realize that um, these environments can be very different from school to school. The challenges from neighborhood to neighborhood can be very different, and so that began kind of my aha moment of what environments look like. What do what uh, a sense of place. And what can that look like for people? And then um, at the same time, the National Basketball Association was asking each of its NBA teams to uh, develop a dedicated community relations department within their organizations. And so, when the NBA came in and said, "This is what the, this is something they wanted to do," I wrote, I raised my hand and said, "You know, I would love the opportunity to ramp up and start up and consolidate all of our work." that is in many different places inside the organization, consolidate that work, and develop a community relations department. And so I ended up doing that for about seven years where Mm -hmm. I was running uh, player relations and I was running employee relations and I was running in community relations and marrying all that together and uh, coming up with platforms for our players to participate in the communities and for the organization and team. To participate and work within the communities and at the same time I was also doing a number of at the time the Milwaukee Bucks organization when I started there were 20 employees in the organization including the coaching staff and so it was a really small organization when I started so we all had to have four different types of jobs. So I was doing sales I was doing community relations I was doing game operation and I was also doing uh when you go to games and you hear the audio system, the music, sure. you hear the organ all that stuff. I was doing that stuff for games, or I did that for 13 years for games. So um, a number of different things, but I really fell in love with the community aspect of the work, the the sense of community and the sense of the impact that an organization can have on contributing to the betterment of a given community. And so that really was where my heart lied. Uh, Over time, about 13 years with the team, felt like I went as far as I could go from a professional standpoint. I really wanted to do things different, really looked at the world in a different lens. And I thought, you know, I want to make a run at working for a nonprofit organization. So um, I took a position as the director of uh, athletic programs for the boys and girls clubs of greater Milwaukee. So I was working with each of their individual areas, um, each of their individual clubs on uh outreach plan policy around physical activity, around uh, sports programming in in that area. Uh, From there, I went to, um, I was working for a a boutique public relations and marketing firm uh, that was minority owned. And we were working on various um, um, uh, projects around college readiness and diversity issues inside of, diversity issues inside of corporations, and inside of corporate five, uh, Fortune 500 companies. But one of the real interesting projects that I had an opportunity to work on was a project with um, the Tobacco Control Board here in Wisconsin. Yes. So if you remember about 20 years or so ago, uh, the tobacco settlements came into each of the communities, each of the states sued tobacco companies, mm-hmm. settlements were reached, and all these dollars were infused in the communities to develop anti-smoking campaigns, secondhand smoke issues um, for youth and adults in Wisconsin. And I had an opportunity to work on a project with the Wisconsin Ethnic Network Collaborative, which was a group of statewide organizations that were specifically targeting work that was happening in African-American communities, uh, Latino communities, Asian, Hmong, and Native American communities around tobacco control. Um, So that was really my first Beyond the community relations field, that was my first time on a statewide level really looking at public health as work, as, as a vocation within my professional career. And that work was really satisfying in that we, when I was working on, that, on, that, on those issues at the time, I was participating in early work to develop the legislation that led to uh, anti-smoking ordinances in bars and restaurants in, in, uh, in Milwaukee. And so that was a big feather in our cap, which, within the work that we were doing at that time. Uh, from there, I went back to the corporate side. Uh, as you mentioned, I had spent about six years working for Harley-Davidson Motor Company, uh, working very closely with their foundation, uh, also working uh, with uh, the corporate communications department. Uh, and promoting all of its good work in the community. A lot of defending the Harley-Davidson brand, working with dealers. I worked on national initiatives with the Muscle Dystrophy Association and Disabled American Veterans. Um, a great opportunity to work for a worldwide brand, uh, doing work around the country in areas where we had corporate facilities. Uh, gave me a real opportunity to spread my wings and really gave me an opportunity to work in a in a venue that I had never worked in before. You know, working for the Bucks. I played basketball in college, loved sports and, and playing sports and being part of sports. Obviously boys and girls clubs, love working with kids and working in PR. Um, I like to talk, I like to frame messaging, I like to have conversations about what things could happen. Uh, but really going to Harley Davidson and working within that worldwide motorcycling community was really a new frontier for me in terms of my own professional development. And then I did that for about six years, great opportunity. But then I realized at that point that I wanted to affect change in a more meaningful way, Mm -hmm. uh, really lead an organization, grow an organization, grow a team, grow a staff, grow work within that organization. And that's what led me to where we met, uh, David, when we got together with uh, when I was with the United Neighborhood Centers in Milwaukee. So working on cross-community projects with neighborhood settlement houses around the city of Milwaukee uh, in southeastern Wisconsin, uh, improving lives, a lot of health initiatives, anti-violence initiatives, workforce development work, arts work for youth, uh, programming work for young people, gave me an opportunity. That was probably the, the position that really grounded me in working with uh, residents in our neighborhoods uh working beyond working with the larger systems of of philanthropy and government and business and the nonprofits themselves. But that was a real opportunity to really get out and meet the people, get out and meet people that were affecting change in their own communities and helping to support their leadership as they became advocates for their own work within their given communities. And um that was really a great opportunity to really build an organization, build our work. As you mentioned, we were writing grants together. Uh, it was really my first foray way into um, the larger scale funding opportunities that are out there with organizations like Robert Wood Johnson or the Knight Foundation or the National Institute of Health, CDC, those kinds of organizations. So it was the first time I was writing national grants. The rigor of, of some of those opportunities, the, the huge amount of learning that took place within those discussions. I mean, David, we, we laugh about the first time that we came together um, to write that grant that we were writing with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation for physical activity uh, within our neighborhood centers. And I, I remember there are takeaways from that first initial conversation that happened that I've used throughout my entire career from that moment, uh, just learning around how public health works and how we're looking in spaces of helping People to realize their potential and realize mm-hmm. their own health journey and that was really an opportunity for me to do a lot of learning and i've taken a lot of those lessons with me as i've been moving forward and i've been in my latest um uh, opportunity with wisconsin philanthropy network now for uh, about three years i'm going on it'll be going on three years uh, in about a month i will be, i will have been with uh wisconsin philanthropy network and really what this opportunity was there's a lot of great work that's happening i know we'll dig a little bit deeper into that in the conversation, but one thing I will say is like the biggest takeaway and the biggest opportunity within those conversations was uh, within my work with WPN is that it gives me an opportunity to see what the philanthropic sector, how they work, how they're, uh, how they are, how they are rooted in the different strategies that they use. And it gives me an opportunity to work with a myriad of people and organizations that are really influencing, in many respects, how work is getting done in individual communities in a number of different issues that are happening within that space.
0: You know, I'm glad that we spent the time here. Um, and I didn't have your bio, Ben. I didn't have your background because I didn't, I didn't know it, all of the things that you had done. And I, I think that's, that it, it really speaks well. And as we get to talk about you and how you m- maneuver in your space, what your backstory has meant to you. But I'm going to go back. I, I do want to, I, I got to go back because, well, because it's my show and I can do what I want. Um, you do whatever you want. I, exactly. I'm a prisoner to the moment. Exactly. You know, you and I grew up, we were born in the 60s and we came of age in the 70s and 80s. We both grew up in Chicago. And, and I know you come from a long line of community advocates in your family. And I see it mm-hmm. in your. I see it in you. Talk about growing up in Chicago for you? What was that like? And what made you think the way you, what you learned then to
1: how you operate now? Yeah, so, so I think, you know, so I, I think I have, a, I, I've had a, a very vivid experience within my own personal life. You talk about, I was having a conversation with somebody yesterday or, or earlier this week about how do people become advocates? Like, how, do, how does a person mm-hmm. get the bones or get the root, get the grounding to, to become an advocate for issues that they care about? And a lot of times, um, those advocates come out and come out in their, um, in, their, in their growth oftentimes starts with parents advocating for their children in mm-hmm. school environments. So something happens at the school parent says, Hey, I got to go up there and deal with this. I have to talk to some teachers. I got to talk to my kid. I got to get this intel. And then they'll make a decision about how they're going to advocate or not advocate for a given situation. And I think a lot of that happened within my own family. My father um, was a uh, Chicago police officer. Uh, He had been on the force for about 20 years, worked in various spaces. Uh, He was a patrolman. He worked, uh, he was a patrolman, he was a detective, a homicide detective for a while. Uh, he was a sergeant. He worked in internal affairs for a while. Um, and so growing up, we had a real sense of the challenges that, um, that, can be, that can befall a police officer. And police officers in the 60s and 70s, and what's really interesting around that is that police officers in the 60s, 70s, and prior, and even moving a little bit forward, they, you know, there are certain vocations, and we know this, that elicit a significant amount of trauma that happens inside of the work that you're doing. So, you know, we think, you know, we believe we have bad days, we believe, oh my goodness, I have to sit down, I have to decompress, I have to do stuff, tough meeting here, or hard project there, But police officers had a real, had a real um, uh, challenge within their work. So my dad was a police officer. My mom at the time was a homemaker. And uh, so she, so she had time to volunteer. So she volunteered. I mean, it it was like, you know, my friends would tease me because they would say, man, your mom's up at the school again, volunteering, working in the lunchroom, Uh, then mother for the scouts, just a number of different things, very active in the church. And so, as they proceeded, kind of through their life and through our lives, we were always looking at, you know, when a, a great story growing up. I was actually thinking about this this morning. A number of kids in our neighborhood wanted to have a baseball team, and so we wanted to play baseball. We wanted to have a team because we were doing a lot of sandlot ball. We wanted to go over to the parks for green and do, build, you know, build play against diverse kids diverse kid groups you know we want to play against white kids we want to know we want to know if we're good and um we went to my dad to try to help ask him if he could help if, if he could help the, if the police department could help sponsor our baseball team mm-hmm. and so he goes to talk to some sponsors at the police department to get into some leagues that were run by the police department and then they asked him Um, well, who's the coach of the team? And he stood there and he had no answer. And he said, well, I guess I am. And became coach of the team. You know, that's that's how my parents were. That's kind of the the disposition that they were in. I have extended family that also had a sense of community and a sense of work. And a lot of it was through sports. A lot of it was through music. Uh, So we had a real sense of caring about our fellow man. You know, we lived in my grandpa's house. He was a look out the window grandpa who knew what was going on in the neighborhood was very protective of his family, but very protective of other kids in our neighborhood. And so we really had an opportunity. I had an opportunity to see that throughout my life, but kind of going back to the trauma piece about police officers and within that work and like many police officers. Um, that that were working in the 60s and 70s and early 80s, my dad really had a bad struggle with alcoholism. And it was really rooted in his work with the police department. And then you watch the effects of something like that on your family. And it had a real effect on our family in many different ways. How we're managing the trauma of alcoholism in our family, You know, what is the impact of that? What is the impact of my dad leaving the force? So all those things were like part of kind of my overall kind of bandwidth. And then as I was getting a little bit older, more high school age, you started to see the prolification of of more gangs in my neighborhood. Mm -hmm. You started to see our neighborhood kind of transition from what was a real middle class neighborhood to more of a lower socioeconomic neighborhood. And it was at that point that I was like, I gotta get out of here for my own safety, for my own, uh, for my own personal growth. And then that's what really ultimately led to me coming to Milwaukee to go to college was the belief that I needed to kind of leave the west side of Chicago. And at the same time, my brother, my older brother was joining the police department like our dad did. And so my, 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 my brother, who's a year older than me, he ended up joining the police department and he ended up working in a lot of the spaces that my dad worked in. Um, and so he was, um, he was a patrolman and he was a homicide detective. And he was a sergeant and lieutenant and commander. And he, had, he actually rose to senior command inside of the police department. Um, and it was really interesting watching his evolution because you saw the transition for officers from Mm self-medication to wellness. So my brother, over the course of his 30-year career, 30-year, 25-year or so career, focused on wellness, Mm -hmm. working out more, yoga, the things that you need to do to build yourself up internally. And that was a mantra that a lot of police officers began to transition from. So you saw longer careers, you saw more adjusted people because they learned how to utilize wellness techniques in order to improve their lives so that they could do a very, very, very tough job. Um, But when I, so I've always been predisposed to neighborhood relations as they relate to law enforcement, neighborhood relationships as they relate to how non-profit organizations in a given neighborhood or even working my high school was a very unique uh, private high school right in the middle of of the west side of Chicago where they really taught us to really, our own self-efficacy really advanced Mm -hmm. as part of my work, as part of the work that I was doing in Providence St. Mill High School. Um, So when I got into the professional world, I had already been looking over my shoulder and thinking about how I was gonna, on some level, impact the community. And so when it came time to volunteer, to get into community relations when I was working for the Bucks. So it's the most interesting thing about that work was there were not many people raising their hands no. to do community relations work because everybody was focused on sales. Everybody was focused on bringing in revenue to the organization and everybody was focused on enhancing their own financial wealth. And so to to have someone in the organization say, yeah, I want to relate to the community, I want to be forward-facing, I want to work outside, I want to work with neighborhoods, and I want to work within the scope of those places, um, it was easy for me to look at that and do it. And then as I've worked my own career throughout my entire life, working in spaces of altruism or working in spaces of philanthropy, but most importantly, working in spaces of relations, um, you know i i i've always believed in the relationship aspect of the work and then as i'm getting out into communities i see women every day just like my mom mm-hmm. i see young people just like me i see men like my dad and so it really is a good self check because you're, you're 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 reliving the lived experience that you had even though you may not be in the exact place that you're in, that you were in when you came up, but the lived experience and the connections that you make and the conversations that you have with people are, are going to be uh, are going to be very important to you as you are kind of working within that space.
0: Yeah. You know, you, you mentioned both your parents and, and I really appreciate you bringing uh, your parents into this equation and your father, who was a, um, who literally started as a street cop and then worked his way up through that. And, and I think he would tell us, and I know enough police officers and law enforcement, that the best way to to police is by knowing your community. It's not force. Correct. It's by knowing your community and your mother is a That's volunteer. Exactly right. I, I got, you yep. know, Tony, I got to be clear here. I, I, you know what? We are similar age. I watch for, I didn't want to be friends with you with your mom volunteering because your mom would tell my mom all the bad things that i would do <laughs> you you didn't have a lot of
1: friends then i know you didn't you know it, it's funny when you know when you know it was a it was a um it was an interesting time mm-hmm. in life and i know you know this it was an interesting i mean you know what were summers like for us summer summer summers were you know you get up at nine you watch a little tv you watch a little captain kangaroo you watch a little ray rayner and then you head out the door around 10 30 in the morning and you don't see any and you don't see your house or your parents until the street lights come on at eight o'clock that night yeah go
0: ahead or i would see your grandfather and he'd say get your
1: be yeah, I you get the
0: house. Come yeah. get come get a popsicle and I'll get you behind yeah, home.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Don't be eating those free sickles down the street, get your ass home and eat the popsicle <laughs> that you have here that I bought for you. Because I can trust what's happening in our home. And so the the, the, the handful of parents that were engaged, you know, my my, my mom and dad were, you know, I think the, the, the greatest thing that, you know, my mom and dad did for us. Like the and it's a simple, simple thing. And this is what I would tell, this is what I tell parents. Parents will say, you know, what do we need to know about, you know, what do we need to know about raising kids? Give me one good piece of advice as it relates to raising your kids. Mm -hmm. And this is what I would tell anybody. And that is the greatest thing that my parents did for me growing up was they took us off the block. Every Saturday. My mom, my mom didn't drive. So, so that's the interesting kind of detachment uh, from kind of how moms are today, where they drive their kids everywhere. My mom didn't drive. So we would get on a bus. Every Saturday, we would get on the bus and we'd go someplace. We'd go to a museum or we'd go to the art museum or she'd take us to a puppet show or she would find, she was really adept at finding all this free stuff that we would go to. And we often went downtown. Uh, I remember my brother and I are very close in age. He would dress us alike. We hated it, but we would go downtown. We would go to uh, we would go to our favorite restaurant at the end of whatever our whatever our our journey was on that day, and it was great because you could see the world. You were seeing different things. And what my dad did was he drove around. He knew the city, so he would when we would when we would look bored or we would look detached or he would feel like hey you're hanging out you're hanging out a little bit too much he would say the simple words we're going for a ride yep and and we would get in the car and he would take us all over the city different neighborhoods different places and we'd say things like hey dad wow that's a nice house i want to live in a house like that and he would go well if you want to live in a house like that what do you think you need to do And and then we would sit there and go. You got to get good grades, and you got to get a job, and you got to do it. He's like, right. So get that D up in math that you got going, because if you want to, because if you want to get a good job, you got to go to college. If you want to live in that house, you got to get a job to pay for it. If you want a good job to pay for it, you got to go to college. If you want to go to college, you got to get through fourth grade, get your grade up. And that was like his his ongoing message. And we always had conversations about careers. What do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to do? Um, And I've always been this kid who I've always kind of lived in this space of, and I think this is a large part of community working within this space, is that I have always believed that I wanted to make people happy. Mm
2: -hmm. Whatever
1: I did in life, whatever came across my life, I wanted to make kids happy. And I remember a, a story from when I was younger that goes right to that. So I'm in the car. I'm in this car with my aunt and uncle and my cousins. And it's four of us. I think my mom was in the car and you know, this is, this is mid seventies. So I think my little brother was in my mom's lap, no child seat, but there was, we were all piled in a car and we were driving down the street and my uncle said to all, said to the kids, Hey, what do you guys want to be when you grow up? And I said, um, and also my, my cousin goes, oh, I want to be a doctor. My other cousin says, I want to be a lawyer. My brother says, I want to be a police officer. And they come to me and they go, what do you want to be when you grow up, Tony? And I thought about it for a minute. So I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, because I hadn't really dove into what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I, and I didn't want to repeat the other answers either. And I was a little guy. I, you know, I was a little guy. probably eight, seven, eight years old. Sure. And I immediately thought to myself, what's a job that makes people happy? What is a job that makes that when people see you doing this job, you are make people are happy to see you. So I sat there for a minute, I thought about it, and my uncle goes, Tell me, answer the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, I wanna be a McDonald's hamburger man when I grow up. And everybody in the car. Bursting out laughing, everybody starts laughing. But <laughs> so the reality is, who makes me happy when I walk in a place? That dude serving that those dude. burgers makes me happy. So I want to do a job that contributes to the happiness of people all over the world. And yeah, I want to be a McDonald's hamburger man. So well, we it, laugh it, about that. But that was, that was the kind of kid I was based on what was going on around it was a
0: it was a different time, and McDonald's had a different context than it does today.
1: <laughs> it absolutely
0: does, <laughs> Tony. I, I want to ask you, and in in the seriousness of sometimes as we speak into these things, did anybody say to you, "You can't live there"?
1: Um. So, no, no one said it to me in my adult life because, um. Because I worked, I worked my way beyond, I worked my way to how I worked my living and being at, at different iterations of my life. So when I first moved to Milwaukee, and got my first apartment, my only priority was live close to some bars so I can walk to them and hang out and, and you know get off work and, and do my thing. And so no one was saying you couldn't live on the Lower East Side of Milwaukee. And then the next iteration was, well, can I um, can I live, can I rent a house in uh, uh, kind of the upper northeast side of Milwaukee? Yeah, you can do that. Actually, I did struggle with finding a little bit of housing when I originally wanted to rent a house in Shorewood. Uh, I, had a, I had a little trouble with a couple of landlords. So mm-hmm. that was like the only time that that really happened in my life. Um, but we were able to get the rent and then purchase houses and live in the suburbs. Sure. Um, but then, um, so I never went through like an overt effort like that, but what I can tell you is my grandpa did, right? So my my grandpa was a world war II veteran and he, when he got out of the service, you get the GI bill, Mm -hmm. but the way that kind of the racial world was at that time, his, um, his GI bill money. Was delayed like 10 years, a uh, delayed a decade before he got that money. And uh, he wanted, he and so he was, he was, he believed in real estate like he was a real, hey, you got real estate, operative word, real. You got to have something, you got to own something. So he knew that he was going to take his GI Bill money and buy a house. And he really struggled with his ability to get a loan. And the reason why he struggled to get a loan was because he was applying for loans in neighborhoods where they weren 't going to let a black man own a house, and so it took him a while to find housing and he ended up buying a house in a neighborhood that was transforming um, that was transforming from a Polish immigrant neighborhood to an African American neighborhood. The banks knew this the the salespeople knew this, so he was steered he was he was he was he is, the, he is the depiction of redlining. Yes. He was redlined into a specific neighborhood on the west side of Chicago when he knew he wanted to live on the north side, when he knew he wanted to live in a neighborhood that was nicer, that had better school better school systems. But, but the systems wouldn't allow him to be able to do that. And he, he went through life one of the nicest, kindest, most generous men I've ever known in my life, probably the most I've ever known in my life but he lived a very bitter life because of that situation. Uh, there was a lot of anger for him in, the, in that in that because of that moment in his life. So he he knew what was happening. He knew what was happening. He knew what was happening. Yes, he knew. Uh, you know, he knew. He knew the minute that he wasn't able to get a loan in a neighborhood, in in, in, a, in particular neighborhoods. But then he was able to get a loan in a neighborhood for more money than what he was asking for in the line neighborhood, and then got a loan to live in this neighborhood. So we'll give you all the money you need to live there, but we won't give you the money here to live there even though it's cheaper. So it wasn't about credit, it wasn't about employment, it wasn't about anything other than you're black, we gotta move you into this neighborhood.
0: So I, w- I wanna ask you, Tony, and I know you don't represent all of community, and community is not a monolith, it's a a new saying I have, but the experience that you just spoke of for your grandfather, this is your father's father? My
1: mother's dad,
0: my mother's dad. Your mother's dad. Your, and the experience of your grandfather is the experience of tens of thousands of black families throughout America. Yes. People who, people who served valiantly in World War II, in the Korea war, yes. in Vietnam, and that then they're yes. denied. They lost the paperwork. Imagine that. Yep. And yep. then when they get their funding, no, you can't go where you want, though you have served our country with distinction. Yes. How do you believe that that is impacted the health of the black community as we go forward through the generations.
1: So, if we, you know, I think about the impact of of that of that neighborhood. Um, I think about the impact of, of of how it all kind of played out. How generational wealth starts. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we were we were fortunate that in the mid-60s that there was a concerted effort for the um, Chicago Police Department and other city departments to hire African-Americans into that space. But who knows what, what kind of job my dad would have had. We were all living in that house with my grandpa. What opportunities would have been laid out for him if he hadn't said, I'm going to go into this environment. I'm going to work in this space. I know it's going to be hard for a black man. I know I'm gonna see and experience some things as part of my experience working in the police department. Uh, I know I'm gonna have to balance relationships with people in the community who are looking at me as a black man working for a police department and then that police department himself. But if he hadn't been a police officer, who knows what what would have happened with him? And then you look at the whole generational wealth piece. So in a neighborhood, so then you're moving into a neighborhood and as the beginning phases, of that neighborhood. So my, my grandpa probably lived in that house, um, probably lived in that house uh, 15, 17, 19, 20 years, 20 years or so, 20 years. He lived in the house 20 years before he passed away. And when he passed away, he gave the house to my mom. Mm-hmm. And then my mom lived in the house for another 10 years. And then you kind of look at this generational love. Okay, so there's this wealth thing that's happening relative to a house that's been passed down. When my mom decides what she wants to do with it, she's going to get X amount of dollars and be able to live in a new place or do her new thing and do her thing. But because of the redlining and because of the neighborhood that we were in in, and the gangs and infiltration of poverty and the drug culture and all the things that were happening in that neighborhood, when it came time for my mom to sell that house, she sold that house for probably a tenth of what we would have been able to sell the house for in the neighborhood if my grandfather hadn't been redlined, And Mm. so you look at, and so selling that house could have, um, selling that house could have uh, impacted um, our ability to, or maybe maybe now Tony doesn't have to take out loans to go to school. Now Tony is doing different things in his life. You know, you and I have had a number of conversations about access to healthy foods, and abilities of neighborhoods to help be nourishing environments for communities and family. Our corner store didn't have fresh food, you know, in our neighborhood. I Although mean, we're living in these environments that aren't ideal for people of color. And we're 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 punitively living. We're, we're two generations away. Yes. And we're punitively living in a situation because some dude made a decision about my grandpa in 1962. And this is affecting my mom, her house and her income and her ability to leverage something of strength within our community 30 years later. And that just isn't happening in many white communities. That's that's just not something that's happening, but it is happening in communities of color. And there, you know, I've told this story about my grandpa a, a, a dozen times every time I tell that story, somebody walks up to me or somebody comes up to me and says, me too, my grandpa too, or my dad too, or people in our family, that that is, that is what, that's what has happened. You can't get stuck and you can't leverage it enough to move into the flourishy great neighborhood. And, you know, as I was looking for places in my lifetime, I was fortunate enough to work for very strong brands. You know, in my, in my lifetime, People, as a a black man, people might give me the benefit of the doubt because I put on their director of community relations for the Milwaukee Bucks. So I might get a little bit of a pass. So even myself, there's a level of privilege that I experienced on some levels that was garnered by the fact that I achieved education, the fact that I was able to find employment at organizations and doing work and, and getting to a certain salary that I live in a space of privilege and I have to recognize my own privilege that gives me a leg up in certain instances over people. And it, and it, and it, and it just trickles down. It trickles from place to place from place from, from moment to moment. But yeah, there are moments in my life where, I, where I've experienced this privilege that I've had. And there have been moments in my life where I've experienced others exercising their privilege onto me. And I think that is the the balance and the, the the juggling act that I think a lot of African Americans are facing in, in communities all over the place, reconciling a lot of different things from a lot of different angles. The beauty of that is, is that we're not, our experiences are not monolithic. Our experiences aren't the same, regardless of some people in this world who think all Black people are living in the same experiences. There's so much diversity of experience within the African American culture that it tells a great narrative story, but it also complicates things as we try to move forward.
0: Absolutely, you know, and, and you were fortunate in that you had greater bandwidth of choices. Uh, on, you Correct. know, and, and some of that is just the circumstances and it, it could be the idea of, you know what, the drive of your family that said, Tony, you got to get that D up there. I had the D's two times. Yeah. So let's, 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 yep. let's we'll, be, yep. we'll be good with that. Um, but it also, your grandfather had limited choices. Yes. Which certainly impacted his life and, and legacy, frankly, because if, it had been, if you had been a white family, the, the, the generational wealth would have been there because we know too many families, that generational wealth isn't there and you came from a, two fam- a two-parent home which makes it more likely to succeed than one pa- family homes. And then we add the idea of the war on drugs and the, and the idea of uh, going back to the 13th amendment, which, um, which is a matter of when mass incarceration started for, for black and brown yeah. people. Yes. It, and, and then people will say, Oh, pick yourself up by the bootstraps, uh, Mr. Shields. It's like, well, you know what?
1: Yeah. Stop complaining. Stop
0: complaining. Yeah. You got, mm-hmm. you got friends that don't even have bootstraps. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. You know, and, and I do think that, that uh, the fire from your mom and dad, uh, I see, comes out in you, and it, uh, 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 what joy. You know, I got I to gotta ask, because you come from a family of, of advocates. Talk mm-hmm. about your relationship with your cousin.
1: Yeah, so, um, so Michelle, Michelle Obama, Michelle Robinson at the time, um, and I are cousins, and she was the one cousin who wanted to be a lawyer on that car ride with my uncle. Uh, when we, when I, when she wanted to be a lawyer, I wanted to be a McDonald's hamburger man. So now I work at philanthropy, and she was first lady of the United States. And um, so that, you know, so that 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 was uh, the beginning of watching what advocacy could look like. And I would say for Michelle and and Barack when they got married. We always knew that Michelle was, like, super smart. Like, like, I knew it when I was seven years old because when she got promoted from the first grade to the third grade, I thought that was, like, the coldest thing anybody in the world could do. Like, wow, she skipped second grade. She must be smart to, like, jump from first grade to third grade. So we always thought of her as smart. Her brother, Craig um, who was all of our age too, uh, very smart guy. He was an athlete. Uh, he ended up going to Princeton. Uh, Michelle ended up going to Princeton. And I remember sitting with Michelle, uh, her junior year at Princeton, after her junior year at Princeton, asking her what she was going to do. Uh, after she graduated and she was talking about going to law school and she said, you know, she, she was worried about maybe not getting into Harvard because that was something that she wanted to accomplish. She ended up getting into Harvard, she ended up um, meeting this guy uh, graduated from there, meeting Barack, working for a, 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 a great law firm, um, and, and then she ended up meeting Barack, who was also a lawyer, but he was a community organizer we didn 't know what any of that was we didn't you know you 're a lawyer you 're rich so i don 't know about any other stuff you 're working on, but you 're rich and I remember the most distinct moment in, 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 in my witnessing their lives, and that was when Michelle left um, a pretty lucrative job at a law firm to begin working for the city of Chicago to get into the community. And I remember thinking, wow, you know, I would, I would, I would take the money and run or I would do these other things. And I remember others in our family were like really concerned about the whole idea around working in the community and community organizing and getting into the space. But what I would tell you about Michelle is that when, when, when I would see Michelle after she left, after she moved into community work and when she helped launch Public Allies, uh, she was one of the founding people of Public mm-hmm. Allies. When she began that work, her conversations absolutely changed. Her conversations were just different. And Barack was the same, was, was the same way in that he was having conversations about social justice. I remember, like it was yesterday, the spirited conversation that Barack would have with my brother, who was a police officer, sure. um, that Barack would have with the conversations with my younger brother, who was a teacher, and how they would have these conversations about social justice and systems and what those things could look like and what those things look like and what they could look like. And so we were we were having these kinds of deeper philosophical discussions all the time beyond family, which was also an underlying tenet within our space of family, family, family. Um, So we weren't having like these bigger, heady conversations about these grand conversations about politics or these grand conversations around the president at the time or the senator at the time. We weren't doing that. We were talking about systems on the ground, effective life on people. Those were the conversations that we were engaged in on a regular basis. And so I think they helped to kind of get us, get, get you in that space. Like I think, about, I think about Michelle and Barack and my own family, my brothers, the, the, the whole idea of service. Every time I made the decision to leave a pretty lucrative corporate job, and moving into the nonprofit sector. So when I left the Bucks to go to Boys and Girls Club, it was that mindset of me coming up and the people around me that helped me kind of think through, it's not going to be a bad move, you're going to learn something and you're going to do something different. Or when I left Hartley to go to United Neighborhood Centers of Milwaukee, leaving a corporate job to go to a nonprofit organization really helped to, um, really, really is a leap of faith that a lot of people don't have the stomach for. And I think my family in in some way kind of modeled that behavior and modeled my being able to do it and continue to build what everybody strives for, which is a pretty good professional career doing it.
0: You know, I, I'm glad you brought that into play and it wasn't just a name drop though. It It, it speaks to, I love the story of the car and that you're going to be a hamburger man. Maybe there's maybe one day that will we'll be that. Maybe, hamburger.
1: maybe I might, maybe I might yeah, put yeah, some burgers maybe,
0: in my later years. I might not, I, I don't rule it out. Do don't not rule it out. out. But you said something that I want to give back to you. And I think that there's something about your family and your way of thinking about the world. You said get into the community.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, so the whole idea around, you know, so one reason I've had a morsel of success in my career is that, and I'll and 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 liken it to working in philanthropy, going out and meeting with every one of our members, having coffee with every one of our members, meeting, meeting with the grantors and the grantees to get an understanding of the landscape and the work. Or when I was at United Neighborhoods in Milwaukee, Meeting out and working with people and getting into neighborhoods and understanding what the real deal is in neighborhoods beyond the flowery, fund development speak that's out there for organizations. Or when I was at Harley, um, not, not, not really being a writer, but going to events, going to rallies, meeting with customers, having conversations and working for a company that their module was really Uh, working with, uh, uh, engaging with the riders, engaging with the community, down to smoking cessation efforts, going up the, you know, spending the nine hours to go up to tribal centers and all the work that I did before that with the Bucks and working with players and communities. The bottom line is I've been able to have a little bit of a morsel of success within my work because I'm willing to meet people where they are. Mm. Whatever the community, whatever the community is, you got to go into the community. you got, you can't look at it from, ivory tower you can't be afraid to engage you can't be afraid to hear things that you're not going to want to hear you can't be afraid to have people tell you that they're disappointed in you or they need you to do more you have to meet people where they are you have to meet people in their environment you have to show respect for that environment and that place when you're there you 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 you're not swooping in to to inflict upon a group your thoughts and what you think they should do and what your research says, you're engaging and you're asking people what they need and what they want and what's gonna move their work as they go forward, what's gonna be better for their lives. So then I'm actually engaging in a lot of those conversations with, um, with the philanthropic community around meeting people where they are. Let's go beyond what the nonprofits are telling you the community needs yeah. And move into the community telling you what they need and then asking a nonprofit, can they deliver that? Is a bigger and deeper and more meaningful conversation and will ultimately affect the change that people in neighborhoods want to see.
0: You know, I'm, I'm glad you said that because, you know, 50, uh, 50 minutes in and we haven't gotten to any of the questions, but he, you know what? You and I knew that was going to be the case. Um, <laughs> I want you to talk about the Wisconsin Philanthropy Network. You know, people don't realize, in in the scope of the 50 states, that Wisconsin is a massive state. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, seven or eight hours driving north, south, uh, far to six hours, depending on where you are, east to west.
1: Yep. Talk to
0: us about the network and the state of Wisconsin, Tony. What do you see out there?
1: So uh, just a, to just a, just a frame the context, uh, WPN is a network of philanthropic interests around the state of Wisconsin. We have about 130 members. And our members are comprised of community foundations, corporate foundations, family foundations, health funders, and education funders. Uh, of our 130 members, there are 1,700 philanthropic interests in the state of Wisconsin. Uh, they could be smaller donor-advised funds. They could be smaller foundations, dormant foundations, inactive in some cases, but there's a quantified number of 1,700. Of those 1,700, uh, those 1,700 foundations give out about $780 million a year in grants. Our membership of 130 uh, gives out about $600 million in grants. So just based solely on the numbers, we have some of the larger and more influential Uh, organizations in the philanthropic sector across Wisconsin. And so what we do is we develop uh, opportunities for our members to connect, to share best practice, to network. Uh, We do research for our members. Uh, There's a wide range of capacity within each, within many of the different foundations around the country, I mean, around around Wisconsin. Our corporate foundation members, for example, might be working in in the philanthropic space, but also might be working in communications or HR or other places. So they they may not have the uh, dedicated staff to do the work. There are a number of different larger scale community foundations, but as you move out into the outward spaces of Wisconsin, some of our more rural areas, our community foundations can be very small. Uh, family foundations are the same way. There are, there are larger family foundations, and there's some family foundations where the third generation granddaughter, the foundation on her own, kind of doing her work. Huh. And so we help build capacity for those organizations. And so what I would say in my, in my three years working with the organization, and part of that work is kind of the mantra that I talked about, which is going out and meeting people where they are. So I've had the opportunity to visit a number of our members around the state in their environments, in their spaces, in their communities, And the landscape of philanthropy, uh, as it relates to sourcing, nonprofit organizations and grantees that are out there, um, it's a very fluid environment. Uh, One of the things that I think there's a lot of misnomers and a lot of misconceptions about philanthropy, that philanthropy is more of an inside baseball game it's only about relationships. Who knows who? Who can get it? If you can get the person on the, if you can get the right person on the phone and ask them for what you need, that's how you'll get it. Who plays golf with so and so, so and so? Who knows this guy? Who knows that guy? And that's not really what philanthropy is like in Wisconsin. Philanthropy in Wisconsin is very strategic. Many of the organizations are working into a space of uh, their own specific giving ideals and principles within the work, their own giving strategies. And it's kind of up to the organizations that are pursuing funds to uh, see if you align with those organizations for funding. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting in that the philanthropic sector, I think what is the most exciting aspect of this work, coming from my other experience of working and, and working for a traditional nonprofit, is that it's a traditional nonprofit, there was always a scarcity issue Mm -hmm. around funding or lack thereof of funding. So there was just a lot of competition. So even when you brought organizations to the table for conversations, you had a lot of one-upmanship. You had a lot of power dynamics at play. You had a lot of organizations that were trying to show their worth because their belief was, if I can kind of outdo these other guys, that's going to be beneficial to our organization. Whereas philanthropy, uh, the space of philanthropy is very collaborative. The Rockwell Foundation doesn't really care how the Dane County or the Madison Community Foundation got their resources and they don't necessarily care how the Green Bay Packard Foundation got their money because they're not competitors. So when they come to tables, they are more collaborative. They, they have more of a collaborative spirit. So they're thinking about uh, co-funding projects, looking at an issue that's happening and thinking about how they can source that work and, and, and contribute to the betterment. I think COVID is a really good example of that. When the pandemic first started, you had funding sources and community foundations and private family foundations and corporate foundations all over the state at many different regions were all developing these COVID response funds and dispensing dollars and co-funding that and many different entities co-funding that money because they um, they recognize that uh, there were a lot of basic needs that could potentially be in peril for sustainability as it moved forward. And so there was a lot of partnership and collaboration among those organizations. I will say, though, that as I go from region to region, um, the philanthropic organizations work a little bit differently uh, as how they engage with each other. No right way or wrong way within that space, but organizations, if you go to the, you go to madison for a conversation for example you might have 35 funding sources sitting around the table listening to each other and what they're mm-hmm. doing uh milwaukee the milwaukee southeastern wisconsin area works a little bit more differently so they'll get three or four or five trusted partners together and then they'll develop some models for co-funding or partnerships and collaboration so different places and different spaces but there are conversations about rural philanthropy that are out there that we're engaging in, where we're trying to get a better understanding about rural. We're also we've also uh, really enhanced our membership portfolio as it relates to health-related funders, so health funders like the uh, Advancing Healthier Wisconsin Endowment and the Wisconsin Partnership Program out of Madison. Um, we've got a number of members like that that have joined WPN so that we can engage in a deeper health conversation around health funds.
0: So, you know, you mentioned this idea of scarcity and competition and collaborative. Um, You and I have that long time joke, where's my turkey? And, uh, and, And it's that notion of if someone's got a turkey, then I better get my turkey too. Right. How, do we, how do we move from as a society with nonprofits in places that are filling the space to support the needs of the community, how do we move to a more collaborative space? I was on a call today and somebody said, so and so and such and such wants us to be competitors. And I simply said, I think that's the wrong attitude. You, you know, we can do what we want, but I, I think we get further by collaboration. Absolutely. How do, we, how do we move to collaboration?
1: So, um, one of the, one of the um, so when I worked for Harley, I was on a charitable contributions committee. And we had a meeting one time about funding sources. And one of the members of the committee said, my goodness, we've got four different proposals from four different organizations and they're all doing the same exact thing. So now it comes down to who knows who on who's going to get funding. And so we brought in a number of those, or, those types of organizations who wrote common proposals. And we said to them, you need to collaborate. So go away, plan, come up with, come up with a model, and then come back and give us a proposal around what you're going to do in this collaborative space. And I said in that meeting, they're going to do it. They're going to do what we said, because They're chasing the money. (laughs) They're chasing the resources. They're going to do what we said, but they're going to kill each other doing it. It is going to be a bloodbath (laughs) because we were basically, we were basically, I mean, we were jet clamping with a shotgun saying, you're going to marry Ellie Mae because this is a shotgun wedding right now. And people are going to do what they're told. And nobody's going to walk away because nobody wants to be the organization that walked away. Um, but there are a lot of forced marriages in collaboration. Let's collaborate around this thing that's happening right now, this urgent thing. Let's collaborate around racial equity because sure. racial equity is, is the big headline right now. And so there's a lot of reactive collaboration and there's a lot of forced marriage collaboration. What I would suggest and what I, what I found in my work with Uncom when I was a United Nations in Milwaukee was that because we had a built, a built relationship among these nonprofit settlement houses, we had the ability to be able to mobilize. And we had already worked through, ideally, worked through our trust issues and worked through the, the, the barriers that would, that would stop a collaboration. So what I, would, what I would say to anybody who's in the nonprofit sector or anyone who is building these collaborations, start your relationship building now independent of a project because it's the relationships that you have that will allow you to pursue opportunities that are out there that are collaborative in spirit. So if you're coming together to send out a press release about what you're gonna all come together to fight this and you never work with each other, you're gonna struggle. And you're gonna struggle with how to, you're gonna struggle with how to, um, you're gonna struggle with how to um, articulate the work how to articulate your ability to be able to carry it forward, who's going to lead, who's going to be in charge, all those decisions have to be made, and if you're making them in a siloed kind of one-off, one-time relationship space, then you're going to be in trouble. I, I think about it like the grant that we wrote when it was medical college, it was Uh, Uncom agencies were led by Silver Spring Neighborhood Center at the time Mm -hmm. and it was Uncom and those relationships were already set. Those relationships were already in motion and it allowed us to get all the crap out of the way so that we could Mm -hmm. start writing and we could start thinking about what we're going to do and communicate with the various stakeholders around what was going to happen. That's the only way to chip away at this and tear this down. And I can tell you funders, are looking for those collaborations because they're thinking more collaboratively. But if you can't demonstrate it or you have the reputation of not being a collaborative organization, then you're, then you're always going to be behind the eight ball. If, they, if, if the community continuously questions your ability to collaborate, you're going to be behind the eight ball. You're going to be in a little bit of trouble as it relates to those kinds of spaces.
0: You know, you you once again go back to that idea of meeting where they are, the idea of mobilization, which means that idea of coming together. You know, I want to ask you, Tony, um, what's the vibe right now in the pandemic, in racial reconciliation, um, the economic issues that we're facing, and the health of our community. How do those pieces fit together from what you've seen here and in other parts of the state?
1: So I think the first thing I would say is that philanthropy is engaged in all of that. Philanthropy on one level. Now, our, our journey, like organization to organization journeys are very different. Some organizations are at different places or different places in their own life cycle relative to that kind of work. But when you put in the... The idea of COVID, the idea of racial equity, the idea of, of, of health and community health and those kinds of spaces. I would say that uh, driven by the work that we're doing in the conversation that we're having within the spaces that we're in, uh, those discussions are taking place in the philanthropic sector. And that's good news mm-hmm. uh, that those conversations are taking place. So, for, for example, and, and, what I would, and what I would also say is everything that you brought up is interrelated. Everything that you're that you've brought up mm-hmm. is aligned with the other. So, looking at COVID as an example, so with COVID, so we we had always been having conversations about health disparities in our communities and what those what those things can potentially look like and the effects that that has on every aspect of a community. Looking at the looking at the public health, I think twenty twenty twenty. So twenty twenty has been just a painful year. It's been a painful ass year for everybody within the space. But one thing that's come out of one thing that's come out of COVID in 2020 and racial equity and public health is that we are now having conversations that people are willing to have or people kind of brush past in the past. So we were having a conversation with our members pre COVID, but this year. Uh, we were in a Madison, we were in a meeting in Madison with a number of Dane County funds. And we were engaged in a conversation about, um, we we were on the agenda. So first thing on the agenda, getting to know you, going around the table, having a conversation. Number two on the agenda was uh, a conversation about funding food pantries. So uh, food access. And a couple of the members around the table were saying, okay, I fund these guys, you fund these guys, they want to fund these guys, let's have a conversation around how we can co-fund and work together in a more collaborative way so that organizations aren't writing separate grants, organizations aren't trying to figure out how to manage various relationships. We can come up with some community standards around what we do, and let's pool some money together and go out and make some contributions. Great conversation, some things were settled, some hand raising, I'll make a contribution, I'll kick in act. Very, very great things. Third thing on the agenda was a member of ours from uh, UW Health wanted to have a conversation about the social determinants of health in a given community and how if you are addressing the social determinants of health and, and you're going to have you're going to have a guide but there education workforce development food access am i forget what else am i forgetting i might be forgetting one or two but those are the housing ones. housing thank you so if you're addressing these issues You are contributing to health. And if you as an organization are funding or dispensing funds and saying that you don't fund health, if you're funding the food pantry, or you're funding a housing program, or you're funding education, or you're funding food, or or you're funding food access, or, or the fourth one, you are funding, you are contributing to the health of a given community, and you are a health funder. And a couple of people in the room literally said, that makes a lot of sense, it was an aha moment. One of the members around the table actually said, dang, I just left this conversation about, um, about the the food factories, and on our website it says, we don't fund health care, we don't fund those things because we're focused <laughs> on these other areas. And so there was this aha moment of, We need to be thinking about health and health equity in all of our conversations, because if you are funding that nonprofit center that is addressing those systemic issues that are out there, you're addressing the overall health of a community. So we've been moving in that direction anyway. So I I want to get your your
0: reaction to this, Tony, because I think you're saying something really important. You know, you mentioned the food pantries, and now we're realizing that that food and social determinants relates to the health of the community. I think we've missed opportunities and and to take it to go further. So I want to go, how do we drill down further? So if we're talking about chronic disease management, really the next step is then how do we talk about food, social determinants and having people think about how they manage their diabetes and control their hypertension. We've been
1: missing that. Haven't we? We have, we have been missing that because we haven't, because what, 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 so my own leadership evolution is taking me to, there is, in people's minds, there is a distinction between health and health care. And when, when, when you hear diabetes and hypertension or any other residual effects that come from that, a lot of the people in the nonprofit sector, a lot of people that are out of the expertise in that area, don't want to touch it. Yes. It's far easier. It, it's, it's just easier to develop a youth sports program and say, we're contributing to the health of young people's health, didn't say, how are we working within a specific space of hypertension or diabetes and what that could potentially look like. However, there, I think that there is another positive um, output from COVID, which is, oh, COVID has affected communities of color and it's affected communities of color and the death rate of people in communities of color have been going up because of these long-term health issues mm-hmm. that people have been going through. And so now all of a sudden, if we're talking about health, health disparities, we're talking about access to certain things, access to certain ability to acquire good food, or the fact that, you know, I, I remember way back when we, we used to talk about the neighborhood center having, having a positive effect on children. Mm-hmm. But if a neighborhood isn't safe, then the kids can't walk to the neighborhood center. So the kids stay at home, eat junk food, play video games all day, never get out, never exercise, don't eat healthy food because the neighborhood isn't safe. And so everything is so interrelated and intertwined, we just have to figure out to answer your specific question, we just got to figure out how to incorporate all of that into the actual conversations that we're yeah, having. Yeah, too,
0: too often we want to parse it out when you said these are complex issues by, you know, mm-hmm. uh, thinking about complex things. So we don't often think the safety and rates of obesity. We just don't put it together. We think about safety right. and choice and, and the food you eat. It's a component of it. Correct. But if, it, if that root issue is the safety and where people live, then we must address that. Tony, this has just just been amazing. And, oh, wait, we got to one question. I am so happy for us. You know, um, I I could go on. And and I I hope I'm going to ask you, um, I want to ask you uh, if there's anything else. Um, But I I do want to ask you this question. Will you come back again and and talk to us more
1: about this? Absolutely. I'd love to talk about the health equity piece. I'd also like to talk about how that intertwines in racial uh, equity, and what that means in our communities. Because I know one of the things that you want to touch on is where's is philanthropy going? Mm. Uh, what are we going in those conversations? And then also another thing that is important to talk about from a philanthropic perspective is the intersection between urban and rural environments
2: mm-hmm. and
1: how urban environments and rural environments have the opportunity to to do a lot of great best practices that can be replicated in the communities, but people's minds aren't there yet, aren't aren't totally there yet. That a neighborhood meeting people where they are strategy that happens in a given community in Milwaukee can be replicated in, in Wisconsin Rapids today because all you need is the population to be able to reach out to. And a lot of those strategies that are happening in given communities Are are things that are happening in other areas and we need to bridge the gap for those conversations. And I think that that's something that, you know, the members of the Wisconsin Philanthropy Network and philanthropy overall want to try to accomplish.
0: Yeah. I think, I think those are really cool conversations and we'll continue to have them because there's no end to this because of these are complex issues. We kind of have to piece them out. And today was getting to know a little bit about you and your backstory and how you think about things. Tony, uh, is there anything else that you want to tell our audience at this time?
1: Uh, you know, I think one of the things that, we're, that, that I, I'd like to leave you with is that philanthropy um, has a story to tell. Mm. And we are, we are trying to be more narrative around best practices and intel and data that's happening both nationally and in Wisconsin. I think that um, it's important to keep in mind that uh, philanthropy is here to help. Philanthropy is here to stay. That there is a a real, that philanthropy as a a vocation, a function, a space, a system within the work that is going on in our community statewide and also nationally, it's a real thing. Philanthropy is real, philanthropy is here to stay. Philanthropy really wants to help. Um, That work, that the work continues. And that we also want to, promote a culture of philanthropy throughout mm. the state where people see themselves as philanthropists, because what is philanthropy? Philanthropy is, is problem solving and sourcing solutions to those problems that we're trying to solve. And everybody in one way, shape, or form can play a role in that. And, you know, I liken it to the whole kid with the lemonade stand who wants to buy you know, a new iPhone. And his mom says, her mom says, um, yeah, you can put half of the money you make in your lemonade stand to your iPhone purchase. But the other half, I want you to donate to charity. And that young person is now researching charity, looking within themselves around what they think is important, what they're concerned about. A lot of the young people go straight to the environment. That's, you know, they see Dora the Explorer and they're like, I want to give to the environment. I want to be part of the environment. And they sure. think about where they're going to be. But that young person that makes a decision about where they want their resources to go, wherever, however small, are, they are now a philanthropist. They are now working in philanthropy. And so we, we want to promote that culture. We want to promote a culture of philanthropy where people are thinking about how they can give, how they can contribute, how they can improve neighborhoods, improve work, source things. Support take things to scale of where they are, where these where 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 things need to happen in our communities to contribute to the betterment of society. You, you know, I'm glad you
0: said that. I I write a, I do my outreach on Saturday mornings, and our and our mission is mission based on Saturday. And, and I call it I write I do a little thing on called Community Saturday, and it's like you yep. wherever you are, there you are. But do some good wherever you are, and, and, right.
2: and, and it's that notion right.
0: of philanthropy, and it could mean something more than nothing more than um, helping somebody uh, uh, helping the elderly um, bag, uh, put their groceries in a car to picking up a piece of trash to to giving to a cause to
1: just making your voice known Yes, yeah, making you know the the we should never ever 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 underestimate the giving of time as a as a as a real Um, value within the community we all know how busy we are we all know how burnt out we are we all know how we have existed in this life and that we don't have enough time to do a lot of the things that we need to do so when someone gives their time they are giving something significant and we can and we should never ever ever forget that
0: we look to we look to your father when uh, his uh superior said well who's the coach of this baseball team and he says well I am yeah, I guess I am.
1: And all of a sudden he was a baseball coach. He's a, so he a little league baseball coach.
0: I, I just love talking to you and I know people will want to get a hold of you. And you are you are so yeah. giving of your time. If people want to get a hold of you to talk about philanthropy, because I always recommend talk to a funder without wanting money, and that's how you learn how to get the money. So how do right. they get a
1: hold of you, Tony? So, they can get a hold of me on our website, which is uh, wifilanthropy.org, all one word, Wisconsin, wifilanthropy.org. Uh, and then you can click on the About section, and you can grab up our contact information and reach out. Yeah, feel free to reach out to me. Um, I, 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 I'm upping my game in uh, meeting people. I've been rooted in and doing a lot of great work on coffee. I'll, I'll meet anybody for coffee. Uh, COVID has not allowed me to do that, but I'm upping my, I'm open, I'm upping my individual Zoom meeting game and uh, bring your own coffee and let's just have some conversations. I right think on. that is something that we need to do in the community. So I'm always happy to meet, talk, give some expertise, uh, listen to frustrations, provide context to those frustrations that people have sometimes around where philanthropy is. Because like I said, there's a story to tell. And people just, we all need to, we all need to engage in what those stories are going to look like.
0: You know and I, I can attest to this and you'll have a little bit of fun.
1: Yeah, a little bit. A little bit, just a okay. smidge. All know. right. A laughable joke.
0: I have yeah, been, this, this. Uh, my final two questions. I've been waiting all show for this. All right. Best Black 70s tv show
1: so i'm going to i you know everybody says good times or the jeffersons or those shows but i'm gonna i'm gonna walk it like i posted and i'm gonna say the white shadow okay was one of my favorite shows came out in 78 79 Ken Reeves, the former NBA basketball player, goes and coaches a basketball team on, in, 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 in South Central Los Angeles. Um, it marries a lot of things that I am excited about, um, race relations, other dynamics that are happening. It was comedy, but it was really a drama. It was a dramedy, um, addressed a lot of different issues, and was also centered around basketball, which I love. So I'm going to say a white shadow.
0: No, I was hoping you would say Sanford and Sons.
1: Oh, uh, so I, <laughs> I was I was a big I was a big fan of Sanford and Sons, but I was more a Sanford and Sons rerun guy over the okay. years. Okay, not when it not when it came out originally. I don't think I was watching that. I was I used to really hack my brother off. Because he was an original Sanford and Sun Watcher. Sure. And I was watching The Brady Bunch and The Partridge Family and, and Room 222 at the time on Friday yes. night. So I wasn't watching the original of that. I was watching the original of the other stuff.
0: Okay. Question number two Best black 70s music?
1: Easy. And they've, and, they've, and they've stood the test of time over the last 50 years Earth, wind and Fire, no doubt about it. No, there's no question in my mind. There are a lot of great bands. There are a lot of great music. My list is long, but the very, very tippy top of my list is going to be uh, is going to be Earth, Wind, and Fire. One uh, A would probably be the Jackson Five. Would be my seventies. be Man, 70s. You,
0: you can't go wrong with either of those. Can't go wrong with either
1: of those. So yeah.
0: it's, it's the one that I, I thought that was going to be was on my list too because that was a good crossover group for even us white guys.
1: Yes, yes, yeah. Talk to white guys how to dance. And that's an important function. That is an important Tony. That is I, an important byproduct and a good byproduct. I
0: am. It is it is illegal for me to dance and I'm just gonna leave it at that. I. I, I can't even tap my foot, brother.
1: well at least you can listen to the music you can let it go through your face exactly get
0: my groove on Tony Shields it is a joy to see you I just love having you on the show and I'm looking forward to catching up to you again more conversation sounds good thank you David wow that was a really exciting conversation with Tony Shields of the Wisconsin Philanthropy Network he shared so much about his life Um, things that were relevant to things that he was growing up, the issues that he faced, how he spoke of getting out there and how his father encouraged him to get out there and how his family was engaged with the community. But he also struggled with, he talked about the struggles that his grandfather had in uh, thinking about housing and how we think about wealth in the community. He reiterated at multiple points, it's about getting to know the community knowing people where they are. Um, instead of thinking about the idea of competition, how do we collaborate? And he, finally, he talked about the idea of mobilization. So as we go forward uh, around the work that we do, we need to think about how we can compete less and collaborate more, how we can build a wealth together as opposed to thinking that there's not enough. I thank you for joining us on the Days of Learning podcast. If you're new to us, subscribe. If you wanna send us uh, some feedback, you can do that. Uh, If you want to reach out to us, we hope that you'll do so at the Days of Learning through MCOP on YouTube, and you can also reach me at uh, at mcw.edu. Until next time, I'm your host, David Nelson, and David Nelson, and this has been the Days of Learning podcast.